Well, as you have a seat, um, uh, as during worship at nine, I was uh, I was along with you singing, and then I I came to a passage just in my mind. I wanted to uh, I wanted to read it over you today. Um, I know there's a lot been going on this week, uh, just with uh, the events that happened at the Capitol. Uh, maybe you've even got some things that are just really personal to you. Uh, that are going on in your life, and that's kind of a distant thing to you, but there's something really, really impressing. But we just sang about the idea that we have a blessed assurance in the fact that uh, there's a certainty that God will never leave us or forsake us, and that no matter what happens uh, through the choices of people, um, empires rise and they fall, and uh, people do what they do, that we have a God that never fails. And so maybe today, just kind of in a, in a posture of just receiving the word uh, for what it is uh, without any uh, addition to it. Could I just read something over you? If you bow your head and close your eyes, just so you can listen maybe and push out some distraction. This is from the Apostle Peter uh, in his first letter in the New Testament. He said these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though as is being refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we, we receive your word uh, as truth to us. Lord, we thank you that uh, our, our future is not dictated by what happens in any capital in the world. Uh, it doesn't rise and fall on who's in office and who's not. It doesn't even rise and fall on the choices of, of others. It, you say that you are not going to leave us and forsake us as your people if we call upon your name. And so today we circle around that, not just us in this room, Lord, we come together with your people all across the world from different backgrounds and different cities and, and small villages, people meeting in big structures, meeting under trees, meeting in uh, hiding even, God, uh, because we are celebrating the Lord's Day, which is the living hope that the resurrection is true. And because of that, Lord, we can, we can face any obstacle. We can walk through with faith in you and not us. And so, uh, Lord, I know that there's been a lot going on just here that's close and familiar to us, Lord. But it didn't catch you off guard. Uh, you are not confused where we might be confused. Uh, Lord, you're right and you're good. And so I pray, Lord, that you would... Shape us into people of truth with humility and kindness and compassion. Lord, that you would expel from your church any hint of racism and hatred. Lord, that you would remove any idol that has found root within your church. And Lord, you would take your rightful place as the King of kings and Lord of lords that has come in the flesh for us and revealed yourself to us. And so, Lord, while there's so many to things, we'll leave that for others. But today, we just want to say that we trust you and you alone. You are the God of this church. And we put our faith and trust in you. We thank you for the assurance that comes from that. And I also pray for those today that um, what happened at the Capitol was uh, not as real to them as what's going on in their real life right now. Um, whether it be uh, a sickness, a relationship, a financial struggle just confusion about what they're doing in life and where they're supposed to go. Uh, Lord, we believe that you are here for them and we pray over them today, God, as the brothers and sisters 
And we ask, God, that you would lead and guide and direct and that you'd bring peace where there needs to be peace and there'd be challenge where you need to challenge us. Uh, so, Lord, we just we trust you. And we ask for you, God, to reveal yourself in all these areas. Um, we are your people, called by your name. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for pausing for prayer with me. We're going to be uh, in a series today, in the second part of a series that we started last week called Begin Again. Begin Again. Uh, we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. So it's three verses, but uh, I went way over in the 9, so we'll see how we do, uh, because there's a lot of stuff packed in that. As you're turning to Luke chapter 3, I'll get into that in just a second, but I did want to tell you one more thing before we get into it. Um, today uh, is... And they were distributing some material uh, as a part of what we're calling Saturate Jonesboro. Uh, we, as uh, connected with other churches in our city, uh, have come together and uh, I want to enter into a season of prayer uh, over the month of February where we're basically just asking God to do three things. One, to give our churches a spirit of humility, to really ingrain our hearts with a sense of His love, and then also that His justice would roll through our streets and that He would make wrong things right and He would use us as beacons of his love and his redemption and restoration uh, within our cities and our neighborhoods where we live, work, and play. And so um, today is a prep day for that. And I'm telling you that because what I would like for you to do before you leave, I want you to be a part of that with us. And there's a, there are these packets that uh, are at our coffee bar out there. There's no coffee there. So it's basically a packet bar today. Uh, you can go by and get that. Uh, but inside that are a few things I want to let you know about real quick, and I'll try to rush through this. Uh, you're going to get a free book uh, in that. It's pretty small. Uh, it shouldn't take long to read, but I would like for you to get this today and begin reading it in preparation for February. It just covers prayer and fasting and, and a few of those little elements. It's a quick little uh, intro to that. You're also going to get uh, a daily devotional for February, uh, and uh, it's just going to give you a little daily excerpt every day to begin your day or at some part of your devotional day to, to guide you in prayer over a 30-day period. Uh, and then the other thing you're going to get is um, this little start here packet. It's going to tell you exactly what to do. Okay, I know there's a lot of questions with this. We're going to start here, and I'll fill in the blanks in the next few weeks. Uh, on the back of that, there's going to be a place where you can write in some names of people in your sphere that you can pray for. Uh, and then ultimately, what we're also doing is we're, we've got this goal of partnering with all the churches to pray over every household in Jonesboro. And, and so you're going to get a list of 17 households in Jonesboro. Uh, we're asking that you don't go and knock on any door or anything like that. This is not a visitation program. This is a prayer program where we're basically just going in the privacy of our own home and we're praying over these people uh, that are a part of our city because God loves them and they're our neighbors. And so I'm going to invite you to do that. Um, and all the information will be in here, kind of what you do. And then we'll be back in touch with you about more details as the next few weeks roll along. Uh, but here's, if you're a visitor here, you can get one of these. If you're a member here, you can get one of these. If you are leading an area, any ministry, you're already signed up to get one of these. And so definitely go by there and get there. But we should have one for everybody. And then if you're online with us and worshiping online uh, and you want one of these things, you can fill out our online connection card, uh, journeyjonesworld.com slash connect. Uh, or put it in the chat, uh, and uh, we'll make sure and get you registered and get you a packet, okay? If you can't get here uh, in, in, uh, in the building with us, we want to make sure that you can pray with us. And then we're going to be praying together over the month of February because we know that uh, what God wants to do is He wants to draw us closer into His presence, and then He wants to do something in our midst, in our city, that only He can do through us as He changes us uh, into the image of His Son. And so today's the first step of that. So before you head out, go by the packet bar and uh, get you... Uh, this is really bad because that sounds like something else. All right, the coffee bar with prayer packets in it. Go by there uh, before you head out today uh, and pick that up and get prepared for February with us for Saturate Jonesboro. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 3. Uh, we introduced this concept last week, and if you're new uh, with us, uh, we typically either take a book of the Bible or we take a concept, a passage of Scripture, and we drill down deep into that uh, for a series of weeks. So for the month of January, we're covering this idea of what it means to begin again. And we started off last week by saying, that any beginning in our life begins with honesty. Uh, it begins with truth about who we are, being honest with ourselves, uh, being honest with others, and being honest with God, that there really can be no substantive change in our life if we don't first uh, come in contact with what's true about us, what we're really thinking and believing and all those type of things. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack that a little bit, and we're going to talk about three specific areas where uh, we have to tell ourselves the truth. And today we're going to be talking about telling the truth about our spirituality. Okay, telling us ourselves the truth 
about our spirituality. And I'm going to give you a few presuppositions out of the gate, okay? Because I think that's probably fair. Uh, I have some presuppositions and so do you. So I'm going to tell you mine up front. Uh, one of mine is I think everything is spiritual. So when I say spirituality, I'm not just talking about what happens in this room today. I really think everything's spiritual. I think what you do tomorrow uh, when you go to work or you go to class when classes start up uh, or what you do this afternoon, uh, I think all of it's spiritual. I think all of life is spiritual, okay? So I don't think it gets more spiritual when you come in here. We just get the, uh, the privilege of doing this together, and it's a really good thing for us to come together and do this uh, and recalibrate and stuff, but it's no more spiritual than what you're going to do this afternoon uh, or what's going to happen this week. Uh, and what I would also say, my second second presupposition is this, is that everyone is spiritual, okay? And you might not call yourself that. You might say, well, I'm not really a spiritual person. Well, you are. We're all spiritual. We all have sets of beliefs and things we believe about ourselves and the world around us, and we frame our decisions and our goals, and we process information and relationships through uh, our beliefs. And so we're all spiritual in essence, and everything uh, is spiritual in essence, and the reason I mention that is because sometimes I think in our culture we try to uh, distinguish or separate uh, secular and spiritual, but they're really, uh, there is an overlap. They're really the same thing. And the other thing I would say, uh, in line with those presuppositions, is a couple of things, and then we hit the ground running, is that uh, those things surface in a couple of ways. And you've probably seen them surface before, even if you're not necessarily what you call a church person. Uh, the, what I would say is spiritual about all of us is that we all have a deep hunger for wholeness. We all want to be whole. Uh, and we, we play that out in a lot of different ways. We do play that out in dating relationships or uh, jobs and careers or majors or whatever. We, we, we try to progress toward this, this feeling of wholeness. But the problem with that is we all run up against the same obstacles too, is that while we have a deep hunger for wholeness, we also have a reality of our own brokenness. Uh, there's probably been an incident in your life where someone's let you down, um, maybe even uh, someone really close to you, a, a parent, a friend, a spouse, uh, you know, a pastor. Uh, we've all had that happen. Uh, but I, I think maybe even the more painful thing sometimes is not somebody else letting us down, but us letting our own selves down. Uh, we all encounter that with the world around us, but we also encounter that internally. We all let ourselves down And so we're confronted while this hunger pulls us toward wholeness, we're all confronted with our own brokenness, aren't we, at some point. Uh, and that surfaces in a lot of ways, and it can really become a crushing weight on us. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was thinking of two, uh, uh, two illustrations to kind of open up with today, because Veronica and I, about uh, a few weeks ago, we, we watched a movie. Uh, we're a little late to game on most movies Honestly, like uh, we were eight years late to the game on this particular movie. Uh, it's called Frost Nixon. Uh, I don't know if you've watched that. It was a Ron Howard film. I think it was like in uh, 2012, something like that. Uh, it was when it came out. So you probably watched it. Or you might have lived through the subject matter of the movie because it uh, really is about President Nixon and uh, Watergate and him leaving office and all those kind of things. Uh, but the story goes that there's this, uh, uh, this uh, British talk show host that gets the rights or the opportunity to interview him post uh, his resignation or removal from office. And he sits down with him, and there's a series of interviews with him, and it's kind of, there's a lot of tension in there and stuff like that. But basically, Nixon is railroading him the whole time, and he's using it as an opportunity to try to kind of cover up and re, uh, reform his public opinion and his public perception and persona and all those type of things. But it's really building to the last few scenes of the movie, as most movies do. And in the last scene of the movie in these series of interviews is the one final interview where David Frost is sitting across uh, in a chair uh, from Richard Nixon, uh, uh, former President Richard Nixon. Uh, and we've been waiting for this whole thing because they've been trying to get to the subject matter of Watergate. And what happens is, what typically happens, uh, Nixon is dodging and ducking and he's uh, making these excuses and all those kind of things. But finally, David Frost gets him cornered. And in getting him cornered, he kind of begins to do what most happens. It's kind of that fight or flight. He begins to fight back. But it, it turns out that he can't win the fight. And in, in the moment, you see him start to kind of dissolve and all these layers of bravado and arrogance and defiance start to kind of be pulled back. And it gets to this climactic moment where he's about to actually say he did something wrong. And the chief of staff, who is Kevin Bacon, who's in every good movie, right? 
he comes in and he stops the whole thing. He stops the whole thing and he pulls Richard Nixon into the other room. He pulls him in the room and he says, he goes, do you know what you're about to do, essentially? And he says, yeah, I know what I'm about to do. So he goes back into the room, he sits down, and they do something which is the subject of the movie that was talking about technology and the digital age and moving into the place where we can actually zero in on faces. They got a close-up shot of Nixon's face in the interview. And in one solitary moment, he finally admits that he did something wrong. And in that one shot in the movie, the actor does a beautiful job because what you see is you actually begin to see this weight lifted off of this hardened, harsh man. And maybe for the first time, he actually begins to deal on some small level with his own brokenness. Brokenness that others noticed and had been calling out in him, but he had been carrying around the weight of it. Though he would desire wholeness, he was carrying around brokenness. And it wasn't until he came into contact in a moment where he started to pull the layers back, where he could finally start to see even a sliver of freedom. And sometimes people press us into that. And then sometimes things just evolve out of ourselves. One other example I thought of this week was uh, taking me back to high school. Uh, I am definitely not uh, a literature uh, uh, professor, uh, I leave that to my kids and my wife uh, with English and literature and stuff like that. But there's a scene uh, in a famous Shakespeare play called Macbeth. Uh, it's in scene, uh, scene, it's Act Five, Scene One, I believe, and it's the scene where Lady Macbeth is dealing with the inner turmoil of a plot, uh, an assassination plot of King Duncan. Uh, her and her husband had propagated this plot. They had seen his demise and his death. They had killed this king. And she begins to sleepwalk through the halls because she just can't get it out of her head. And though no one was pressing her, she was dealing with the internal turmoil. Though desiring wholeness through power, she was experiencing brokenness internally, and it came out in her sleep. She was walking the halls, and here's what she said. This is a summary of it, I kind of uh, cut it, copied and pasted it, cut it and pasted it together. She said, yet there's a spot. And she said, out damn spot. She had the blood on her hands and she was rubbing it and couldn't get it out. She said, I say, what need we fear? Who knows it when none can call our power to account? She thought she was in a powerful position and that power made it right, but she could not get rid of the brokenness. Yet who would have thought that an old man to have so much blood in him. What will these hands ne'er be clean? Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And you can feel and sense what has stood the test of time with this play is what we all experience on some level is it's not always that someone presses us into a corner and we have to give an account. But all of us at some level in the privacy of our own heart and our life, we deal with the reality of our brokenness on some level and we deal with it on some level. Why? Because everything is spiritual and everyone is spiritual. And the only way for us to begin again is to actually tell the truth to ourselves about our own spirituality, where we really are and what we really believe. And I say all that to kind of set up for us, I think, uh, hopefully, these three little verses, because what this, these three verses do is they unpack, I think, what John the baptizer is doing is he's provoking a crisis of belief. He's drawing people to a point of saying, what do you really believe and what's your spirituality? And with that, these three verses take us on kind of a wild ride and it unpacks really what I think is the substance of the whole story of all of our spirituality. So let's get there this way. Let's go to Luke chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. And I'll say this, is that we're probably going to raise more questions than we're going to answer today. And just let you know the way we function around here is we're okay with that. Uh, sometimes people come to church and they want answers and I get that and you need that. But I think what is more important oftentimes is for you to walk out and probing for bigger questions. And to look to Scripture and to look to God so that He can be the answer. And so uh, I don't promise you that I'm going to give you all the answers today. But hopefully what I'll do is I'll at least lead you down a path towards some questions so you can engage with God 
on a deeper level, and we'll do it together, okay? So Luke chapter 3, verse 7. This is what happens. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Okay, you see why I set this up? It took so long to set this up, right? All right. Uh, so let me give you the context real quick. Uh, we did a little bit of this work last week, but basically you got this guy, John. He's the cousin of Jesus. Uh, and their stories run in tandem, parallel. And we get to the point of Luke chapter 3 after telling their, uh, the birth narratives in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. And John is arriving on the scene, and he's talking to this Jewish audience, and he's saying, hey, repent for the kingdom of God's here. Here comes uh, Jesus. He's coming after me. Something new has started, and he goes down to the Jordan. Well, what's interesting about that is the Jordan River is about 20 miles from Jerusalem. And so you've got this group of people that have made, uh, are trained enough, and they've made this trek down from Jerusalem 20 miles down to the river to hear what this prophet has said. And most of them go with an anticipation because he's the first recorded prophet in 400 years for the people of Israel. And they're probably waiting and hoping to hear uh, kind of a continuation of, of the story. Uh, this, they're saying, okay, this is kind of the uh, same song, different verse type of thing. But what he presents to them is he draws them to a point of crisis. And he's about to reflect, them, uh, reflect upon them to help them to see themselves in a new light so that they can begin again. So they can start a new beginning. And so he's talking about baptism, but it, you see what he calls them? He calls them you brood of vipers. Now, uh, uh, we baptize people around here, and I've never called anyone a snake when I've done it. Never done that. Uh, if you want to get baptized, I'm probably not going to call you a snake or anything like that. So it's kind of intriguing. Why in the world would he call them a brood of vipers? And keep in mind, this is a group of people. They were uh, Jewish uh, by heritage. They were continued, uh, called the people of God. And so they were really tied into their cultural and national identity as the people of God. And they thought that that was good enough for them. And so what they hear in this moment is something actually that Jesus will revisit time and time again that actually points us to a reality check for the spirituality for this Jewish group of people. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you two examples of Jesus using this same vernacular really quick, and then we're going to double back and we're going to see why it matters, okay? Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus does the same thing. He's talking to a group of Pharisees, and he says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And you know that to be true, right? You know that to be true because a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and the evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in him. So what does that mean? Essentially is what Jesus is trying to get to with this group of Pharisees is the same thing that John's trying to get to uh, at the Jordan River is that we create for ourselves identifiers to make us think that we're okay. But what Jesus frequently tried to point us to is that though you may have something that you would, you would say dictates your spirituality and gives you security, that there's something inside you that really tells the tale. He would say things to Pharisees oftentimes like, uh, you're a whitewashed tomb. That means you're dead inside, but on the outside it looks clean and pretty. He says, you've done a great job of washing the outside of the cup, but on the inside of the cup, there's still a lot of grime and dirt and gunk in there. And this is the story oftentimes of religious people is that we try to make things look a certain way and we try to hang our hat on certain identities, whether it be national identity or whether it be your, your parents or your denomination or whatever it may be. And then on the inside, you would say, well, on the inside, you're really not changed at all. See, this is what John's saying. It's the same thing Jesus is saying. But he, he refers to it in one other place. In, in John's gospel, John's telling a Jesus story. In John chapter 8, Jesus says to a group of people, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Jesus, in this instance, is talking to a group of people, and he points to the fact that though these people were Jewish, that they didn't recognize him because they had a different father than him. They thought they were okay. They thought they were in a good spot. But they thought they had Father Abraham, and they thought their father was God, and in, in, indeed they couldn't even receive Jesus. And the reason they couldn't receive Jesus is because they had not come to terms with the truth about their spirituality, what God was really trying to get to. And so in verse 44, he finishes that thought real quick. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is not truth, in, for there's not truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And so the problem is a truth-falsehood dynamic. It's a binary thing in, in, this, in this case. He's saying what you've done is you've bought into the lie that because you have this heritage, you think that you're okay with God, that that makes you okay with God. And what John had picked up on was this same concept, he, that this new beginning through Jesus was to bring us all back to God. But in order to come back to God, you have to see where you really are. And oftentimes religion is one of the biggest obstacles for us to realize our own spirituality. We think we're okay, and you know as well as I do, sometimes everything's okay until it's not. I mean, have you ever had that happen in your life where you're going along and then all of a sudden everything you thought you were trusting in, the foundation crumbled from out, out from under you? What you had, the ladder of your life leaning on, the wall fell over and your faith fell with it. I mean, we, we've all had that happen. And if you would not call yourself even a Christian, you've probably experienced that as well. There's a point in our life when we are confronted with what are we truly trusting in? What do we truly believe? And so what John alludes to, Jesus also alludes to, is he's trying to point us back to the hope, but we have to see where we really are. And, and in order to see that, he, it really takes us back to Genesis chapter 3 that we talked about last week. In Genesis 3, if you remember the story, um, the Satan, who is the deceiver, who's the liar that Jesus refers to, he shows up in the first few scenes of the Bible, and uh, what he does is he tempts and he lies to Adam and Eve and gets them to believe a lie and to actually trade the truth for the lie, and the result of that was death. And embedded within that story, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was the promise of God to make everything right in spite of our falsehood and in spite of our failure and our brokenness. And this is the promise that was embedded in Genesis chapter 3. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The, your offspring in there, doesn't that sound like what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 12, John chapter 8, and what John was prefer, probably referring to, you brood of vipers, that you're, you're actually coming from a different source. You've believed lies. And what you have to do is you have to be willing to tell yourself the truth. But the first thing is to realize where you really are. And this group of people, he basically took a sledgehammer to their false belief so that he could get to who they really were. And so if you drop back into Luke chapter 3, verse 7, he mentions this phrase. He says, you brood vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Now, the coming wrath. Now, here's where we're going to hang out for a little bit because this is where the questions start. The questions start with God and it, when we really try to identify who God is, right? Because some, some people are just like, well, yeah, you read the Old Testament and you say, well, that God in the Old Testament, he seems really angry. The God in the New Testament, he seems really loving and nice, you know, and so I'm going to hang out over in the New Testament. I don't understand the Old Testament. I don't agree with that God. Uh, and so we push him to the side. But what Jesus reveals to us is that he is God eternal. Now, in order to do that, we have to be willing to ask big, difficult questions. And oftentimes when we do that with God, we get into what we call paradox. Paradox is an apparent contradiction. It means that uh, where we would want to gravitate toward one or the other, some of us would say, well, I like the God that's uh, kind of, um, uh, he's really just and holy, and we gravitate that way, and we don't look very loving oftentimes. Some of us, we gravitate the other side, and we're so loving sometimes, we're, we, we kind of dismiss justice and, and, and those type of items. And so we don't get a full picture of God, because it's really hard to wrestle paradox to the ground. But I would willing, be willing to assert to you that the things that are most true about God are paradoxical. I think the things that we have to be willing to embrace is that uh, when we th say things about God, like the fact that He's completely holy and just, and He's completely merciful and loving, that those two things are mutually dependent realities about who He is. I, I would say it's as true as saying that God is transcendent and other, uh, and you know, out there, and He's imminent and He's with us. These are really hard things for us to wrestle with. Uh, how is God sovereign, and we still have the ability to choose? 
Well, I don't think it's an either-or equation for these things. I think the totality of who God is is paradox. And I kind of like that. I think that's a good thing because I think if you, could, uh, if you could figure everything out about God, then probably you think you're God. That's kind of what I think about that. Uh, you think you've got God figured out. You put yourself in the driver's seat of figuring this stuff out. But when we look at Scripture and we see who God is and we look at general revelation of what God has revealed, we merge those two realities and we, become, we start to put the picture together of who God really is. And if you're going to wrestle with spirituality... On any level, you're going to have to wrestle with the, uh, the dynamic magnificence and the dynamic difficulty of who God is. Because that's what everything being spiritual means. The beauty of that is, is when we read Scripture, is God actually knows that those are the questions that we're going to be asking. He knows that. Um, and when he first reveals his name, he, te- he talks about it himself to his people, the first recorded instance uh, in, um, in the Bible of him saying who he is, and actually the most quoted reference of the Bible of itself is an instance where God reveals himself. And when he first reveals himself, he actually deals with this tension about wrath and love. Uh, and it happens in Exodus chapter 34. It's an instance where God meets with a guy named Moses, and God actually tells who he is. He says he passed in front of Moses Proclaiming, This is what God was saying when he passed in front of Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord, and I'm going to pause right there because we've got everything in caps up here, but in your passage of Scripture, whether it's on your phone or in your Bible, uh, everything else is going to be probably lowercase, like normal sentence case, and the word Lord is probably going to be capitalized, and that's on purpose. That's not a typo. That's because that is a a distinct name of the covenant God of Israel. This is God's self-revelation of himself. Uh, it is the word Yahweh. Uh, it is Lord, all caps in your Bible. So every time you see that, that's what that is. It doesn't just mean generic God. It is this specific God revealing himself uh, to his people. And so this is what the Lord, covenant God of Israel, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and uh, the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, here's paradox when God reveals himself. And the first thing he describes himself at is he says, this is the gracious God, and he says this is, he is slow to anger. This is the first thing God says about himself. Now, in Hebrew, that word slow to anger, if you throw it up here, I'm going to go to that word, uh, should say slow to anger up here, uh, the Hebrew phrase for that actually means long of nostrils, okay? So what does that mean? God's got a big nose, right? That's what it sounds like. Well, it, it's supposed to give you an image, right? And I'm thankful they didn't do a word-for-word word translation here because I don't think anybody would understand this, right? If you think about the picture of this when somebody makes you mad and you maybe you're, you're quick-tempered, right? And so you yell out really quickly, you know, you're, you're very reactive in that. Uh, and you think about what happens with that, you take a deep breath and you, you kind of let it go, you know? Well, with God, what he says about himself is that when he looks at the destruction that has happened in the world, when he looks at the difficulties, the crimes perpetrated, when he looks at genocide, he looks at homicide, when he looks at all the things that are unmentionable in a public context, when he sees those things, it stirs him with emotion. He becomes angry, but here's the thing you have to know about God, is when God looks at those things, he is long of nostril, which means that he takes a deep breath and he goes, okay. So he is tempered by his love. So within the context of God, God is fully just, and he sees the egregiousness of crime and brokenness uh, and, and harm and hurt that's going on in our society, and it stirs him, but he is also loving, and so it stills him. And so this is who God is. But it, what does it also say? It also says that he, is also, he also punishes people to the third and fourth generation. Well, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that God is vindictive? And that God is like trying to get after people. Some of us, we walk around with that perception of God all the time. Well, God's just waiting for me to trip up. 
uh, all the people that follow God seem to be angry about everything. And so maybe God's just angry and he's volatile and he's capricious and all those type of things. But what it really points to is what I would call the logical consequence of our decision. You see, the reality that God gives us the ability to make decisions is, means that he is a God of love. Um, if you don't have the ability to make a choice, uh, then you don't have the ability to return back freely to God the love that you have. Uh, otherwise, you'd just be a robot, right? But intrinsic in that ability, that gift of love of God, means that that also comes with the bearing of responsibility for our choices. And so the logical consequence of our choices, they begin to play out. And so when you see the wrath of God that we looked at in John chapter 3, which you most frequently see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the picture of the wrath of God is God giving us over to our own decisions. That's why it's, it kind of takes its toll in your life. Uh, matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, this is his description of the wrath of God most frequently in Romans chapter 1. He mentions the same thing three times. There's too much in it to read, but in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, and I'm going to go down to verse 32, you're going to see it reflected, and you can go and read it for yourself. But he basically says this, Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. God gave them over. And you can see how this is both loving and just at the same time, right? And they did what, what not ought to be doing. Although they knew the, God's righteousness decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continued to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so what do you see? You see that what God is doing to us most frequently is He's giving us over to ourselves. And the thing about that is, is that this takes into context the nature of the brokenness that we feel internally and that we live within. Matter of fact, um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I've got a long quote, but I'm going to read it to you because I think he explained it a lot better than I could. Uh, he talks about this particular passage in his commentary on Romans, and this is the way he describes this. If you're having a hard time to kind of comprehend what I'm saying, see what N.T. Wright says. He says, The great evils of the 20th century, and we're obviously in the 21st, and we've got our own set of evils going on, have reminded us that unless God remains uh, implacably opposed to evil that distorts and defaces creation, not least humanity, God is not good. If God does not hate brokenness, if He doesn't hate murder, if He doesn't hate lying, if He doesn't hate rape, if He doesn't hate sexism, and if He doesn't hate racism, if He doesn't hate those things, then He's not good. Paul's whole theology is grounded in the robust, scripturally rooted view that the Creator is neither a tyrant nor an absentee landlord, but rather the Creator and lover of the world. The result is God's wrath. He goes on to say this, not just an attitude of hostility toward idolatry and immorality, but also actions that follow from that attitude. The content of God's wrath involves the process of God's giving people over to the result of their own folly. But also more, those consequences are also the, an anticipation of a final judgment. And then he finishes with this, and then we'll be done. The death spoken of in Romans 1.32, the two are organically connected. Moral degradation in the present anticipates the ultimate degrading of humanness itself in death. He's talking about the loss of what it means to be truly human. He, he's talking about this fact that when we make a decision to build our spirituality on falsehood, then we point our lives in a direction. And that gets us to the nature of the cause of the punishment or the wrath or the difficulty or the death that's in front of us. And here's the two realities I want to point out when it comes to our own decisions and our sin. Our sin and our decisions are directional and progressive, and they're individual and they're corporate, or you might say systemic, okay? That means that when you make a decision to do something, and everything's spiritual, right? When you do that thing, it is actually enacting, and it's changing you, and it's pointing your life in a direction. There's a trajectory to your decisions, and they're progressive. That means that your, uh, your decisions compound upon themselves. That's why some of you, you look back to like high school or college and you did some things and you're still paying for them or your 20s, your 30s, and your 40s, you're still paying for them. Why? Because they're directional and they're progressive. 
All right, if you were to carry that out into eternity, you can see how that would play out in, in, in the space of time, right? But it's also individual and corporate. Uh, we live in the West, and so oftentimes we think of sin, well, it's just the individual sinner, individual person. It's whatever works for you, getting yourself right. But here's the problem with that, is that when you read Scripture, it deals with individual sin, but it also deals with the reality of corporate sin or systemic sin. That means that individual sinners enact and codify decisions, and they implement those in society, and so our structures become fallen. And so if we're going to deal with our brokenness and the wrath, then we're going to have to look at what we have responsibility for as individuals and how those choices play out in society and how we actually enact a different set of events. Another uh, famous writer, C.S. Lewis, he talked about this directional, progressive, individual, corporate uh, idea. And, and, and uh, it's one of my favorite quotes from him. I want to read it to you real quick. And this last quote for the day, I promise, okay? Uh, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than before. And taking your life as a whole... With all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. You're constantly being shaped by your choices and your decisions. And you're becoming either, either a heavenly one that's becoming more of what you're supposed to be as a human, or you're dehumanizing yourself and those around you. He says, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, is the joy and peace and knowledge and power. And then he goes on and finishes it saying, to be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And you see how that plays out, right? Everything is progressive and you're setting a trajectory. And so as that happens, the reality, the sum total of that, or the culmination of that, could be viewed as God's wrath. But who is culpable in that? Well, you and I are. Why? Because we're the ones that choose to turn away from what God has for us, the true humanness that means to be created in His likeness and all His goodness, to enjoy the beauty of relationships, to be at peace with God and with others and with ourselves. And so if that's the reality, we're all searching for that wholeness, and if we're all coming into the obstacle of our own brokenness and our own sin, then what is the solution? Well, remember what John said uh, back in chapter 3 of Luke. He says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Well, on one level, nobody had to warn them, because we all flee from the coming wrath. We all have our self-salvation projects. We all try to figure it out. And so we all, nobody wants brokenness. We all want life. We all want good things. So on one level, nobody had to tell him. But what he's pointing to is even a deeper level. That unless God steps in and reveals it, we will continue to wander and we will never be finished. We will continue on the progression away and lead toward destruction. But God wants to bring us back into wholeness. He wants to fix the brokenness. And he has to do that by fixing, by us telling ourselves the truth about our own spirituality. But we've got some obstacles in place. And they did as well. There are obstacles serviced in verse 8. Uh, this is what he says. He says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. He's saying, listen, in order for this to happen, then there's going to have to be fruit keeping with repentance. That means that, uh, it's one thing to just say something. It's another thing to do something. And, and I felt the need to say this at night. I'll go ahead and say it again. Uh, this is one reason why we don't really do a lot of public altar calls here. Because this is a deep thing. This is a big thing. Uh, and I'm not saying other people that do that are, are wrong. I just know that I always have this like tension in me. Because what I don't want anyone to do is ever to think that they can just say a few words like a magic incantation. And everything's okay. Because what John is talking about, what Jesus revealed, is getting on a different train track altogether. If you're on this road to your life, then God wants you to move over into a different track and go a different way so that you can move toward wholeness. And that does not happen by waving a magic wand or repeating after a preacher. You've got to really begin to walk in what God wants for you. And so what John is saying here is he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance if you're serious. 
if you really want wholeness, if you want to escape the brokenness, then don't, make, don't give yourself the excuse that oftentimes, especially religious people give, and in this case, the Jews gave. They said, well, yeah, but we're fa our father's Abraham. They went back to their heritage. They went back to something that was not following Jesus and not pursuing wholeness in God. They hung their hat or laid their foundation on something earthly in the end. God wanted to go deeper. And we've seen this in our society uh, in so many ways. We've seen it this week with people with uh, uh, putting their, uh, hanging their hat on nationalism and merging the two of Christianity and saying, well, if we can just advance our, our agenda, then we can, we can make everything right. I think what Jesus would say is, no, you can't. No, you can't. You can't dress it up. You can't put a bow on it. What you've got to do is you've actually got to become a different person. You've got to take on the nature of Jesus, and you've got to follow the way of Jesus. And he says, I tell you the truth, if you don't do that, if you don't do that, then you'll never escape the endless cycle of putting your hope in things that can never deliver. Because everything's spiritual, and everyone is spiritual. But there is one way that Jesus has given us to bring us back into right relationship to wholeness and right relationship with himself. And he says that don't, make yourself, don't let yourself believe these excuses. And in the end, the other thing that you want to do is you've got to act quickly. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 9, he finishes up. He says, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He says the axe is already at the root. That that way of doing things is no longer going to carry you forward. You've got to start new. You've got to walk through the waters. You've got to come out of where you were into what God has for you. Because God wants us to escape the brokenness. He wants us to be restored to wholeness. Matter of fact, one of the most uh, common metaphors in the Old Testament uh, when God was dealing with his people in terms of wrath and removing his hand from them, uh, he, they would use this phrase oftentimes um, uh, called uh, the cup of God's wrath. And you see the major prophets talk about it a lot. Uh, and so what that means is that when Babylon would come in and conquer uh, Israel or Assyria would come in or Persia would come in or whatever, God would basically give them over to their decisions and they would use this picture of, of God's wrath being poured out through Babylon or through Assyria, right? And so what John announces in Luke chapter 3, Jesus interestingly performs for them. He is the one that actually takes the cup of God's wrath upon himself so that we can actually enter into wholeness. Uh, matter of fact, there's this scene in Matthew's Gospel. We're almost uh, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, Jesus is headed to the cross. And as he goes to the cross in Luke 26, he says, he goes a little far, he falls to his face to the ground. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see what John was announcing, Jesus was performing. And he says, I'm going to go to the cross. And the beauty of the cross is... That in that moment, the totality of God's love that was revealed, that God named himself in Exodus 34, and the totality of his justness were all met in one point on the cross. And Jesus, who is the embodiment of the love of God, actually comes and he withstands the barrage of the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can walk into the wholeness of God. But for Jesus... He prayed to God. He said, God, I can't imagine. Father, I'm going to have to withstand the cup of your wrath. Who can withstand it? But we know the story, right? He got out of the garden. He went before Pilate and the others. He was beaten, flogged. He was stretched out on a tree. And on the last moment on the cross, in John chapter 19, verse 30, he simply said this. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And what happened in that moment is that what God did through himself, through the ability of us to be truthful about where we really are, is he said, I want to finish what you started. 
I, I want to fully and finally get you off the treadmill so that you can breathe, so that you can live, so that you can be whole, because He wants you to be true about where you really are so that you can move into wholeness. And that's what He wants for all of us, and that's why He finished the story for us, right? And so today, maybe today is just a simple reminder, a recalibration for you. Maybe you've, you've gone through this and you've put your trust in other things recently. Uh, there's some things maybe in your life, right? Now you're putting your trust and your anchor and dropping your anchor on those things. And what God would say is, listen, I want you to evaluate what you're trusting in right now. Because truth and trust go synonymously. They go hand in hand. What do you believe to be true is what you're trusting in. Are you trusting in another relationship or maybe your own perspective or, or I don't know, whatever it might be for you. Maybe right now God's calling you back to say, oh, be truthful about that. And he wants to move you into right relationship with you. Some of you, this is brand new information. I mean, you're not, not that you're not religious, but the idea that God just doesn't want you just to come to church and do these things. He wants to push deeper into your life is new information to you. And, and what he wants for you is to feel the freedom of knowing you can be honest about that. And in this place, you can be honest about that. And God will meet you right there. And he will kind of overcome those obstacles and excuses so that you can move into wholeness and move into freedom too. And you can begin to follow him and bear fruit that's keeping with repentance. And so maybe today as we finish up, I want to ask if you would, if you bow your head and close your eyes, Ben's going to come out in just a second. We're going to sing one final song, but before we do... I'm going to ask if you would, if maybe just you would think for a minute and maybe just do a little bit of self-evaluation. What are you trusting in right now for your wholeness? As you begin to identify that, would you then now just speak truth over that? You might just say something to God, like, God, I believe your word is true, and I believe you're true. It might just be that simple. Would you just talk to God? Would you thank God right now that he wants to bring you into wholeness? He wants good things for you. Father, we come before you right now um, and we just want to say and be honest with you that we all, as you know, put our trust in so many things. It's almost like a sliding scale oftentimes it seems of uh, a moving target of how I trust in that, I trust in that, I trust in that. But I pray, Lord, you would bring us all to the center of our trust today. Uh, you would speak truth to us and help us to be truthful with ourselves so that we could begin again and start fresh today with you. For the person that might be receiving this information as new information today, I pray, Lord, that you would prompt them to ask deeper questions. And, Lord, stop by even the Welcome Center today with one of our team members that's out there and just say, hey, uh, can I talk more about that? And begin that relationship with you and begin to talk about what it would mean to follow you. Uh, I pray for all of us as a church that we would begin to take on the character of Christ in deeper ways, that we begin to manifest that as fruit in our lives in the way that we conduct ourselves and engage the world around us. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you as individuals and corporately, God, we give ourselves to you and we ask God for you to speak to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you finished the work so that we don't have to. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's sing around that theme and send us back out into our week.